Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is really a a fascinating discussion because it really is germane to what is going on today between conservatives and liberals. You know, to me, uh, the Constitution is a contract. It was a contract among 13 original states, and they formed a, a creation, which was the federal government, and they set down a set of rules. And that was a contract among them, and they provided for various ways of changing it if necessary. And you'll notice, and of course I'm sure you'll be the first to admit, They purposely made it pretty difficult to change the Constitution. It wasn't something you could do on a whim. You had to have the three-quarters and the two-thirds and all that kind of supermajority stuff in order to do it. So they did not mean for us to just change the contract among among us uh, for no good reason. You had to have a very good reason, and you had to have enough people get together and say, yeah, I guess that really is a good idea. But... Again, that goes back to this this concept. Uh, the contract is a philosophy of governance, which can be applied to things that were not in existence at the time. Wouldn't you say that's true? Yeah, there were, of course, there were a lot of things that the framers never contemplated. I mentioned the Internet. Well, there are, there are all kinds of developments that have occurred since uh, 1780. 89 that the framers could not have possibly imagined. But that doesn't mean the Constitution doesn't apply to those things. The Constitution is not a legal code. It is a broad set of principles and abstractions that are then fleshed out by legislation and by litigation. And it's the legislation and the litigation that adapts the broad principles in the Constitution. Principles like limited government, separation of powers, checks and balances, and the Bill of Rights, free speech, free press, etc. Those are broad abstractions that uh, gained flesh uh, by legislation and by litigation, and that occurs over time, even though underlying circumstances and underlying cultures and technology and the like are changing rapidly. It does not change the fact that the Constitution can be applied to those changing circumstances, and it can be applied without changing the original meaning of the Constitution. And if we decide we want to change the original meaning of the Constitution, the framers were smart enough to know that there would be some things that we would want to change over time, and they provided a process uh, for doing that. And as you say, it's a difficult process. You have to have two-thirds of both houses to propose amendments, and then they have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. And if you don't count the Bill of Rights, which were our first ten amendments that 
came two years right after the Constitution was ratified. Uh, the Constitution has only been amended 17 times after the Bill of Rights. 17 times in 200 and, you know, 220-some uh, years. Uh, that's quite an extraordinary small number. I mean, there are lots of other countries that have had 17 constitutions over that period of time. And we've had 17 amendments. And that's a tribute to the genius uh, of the framers, the fact that they foresaw so much and they were smart enough uh, to recognize that there were things they wouldn't foresee, but nonetheless, the Constitution would be a set of broad principles that could be applied to some of those things. You know, over time, which what we have seen is that, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has become more of a political body than a true, uh, true deliberative legal body. Uh, to me, that doesn't seem right. I mean, I would think that you shouldn't get on the Supreme Court because you believe certain decisions should be made in certain ways. It should be your ability to uh, interpret the Constitution according to the uh, original original writing. But I guess that goes back to that conflict between originalism and the living Constitution. Yes, it does. And, of course, we see this play out in the confirmation process all the time, where the uh, senators persist in asking uh, the the nominee, uh, how he would rule on specific issues. And, of course, the nominee uh, comes back uh, and says, look, I can't tell you that because the issue can, may come before the court, and I don't want to have to recuse myself on the grounds that I've already committed myself to a particular point of view. Well, you know, what they ought to be asking the nominee is how they stand, what their interpretation of is of the, the broad uh, principles that underlie the uh, Constitution, separation of powers, checks and balances, limited government, federalism, dual sovereignty. Uh, we ought to ask what what's meant by unenumerated rights, uh, what what's meant by reserved powers to the states, uh, what's meant by privileges or immunities or due process. These are the broad abstractions that control what's uh, what the interpretation of the Constitution. It's those kinds of questions that are perfectly proper and that a nominee ought to be able uh, to answer rather than are you going to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, which is you know something that a nominee quite right, right, rightly should not answer. Well, now that Gorsuch has been uh, confirmed, um, and with our discussion that we've just had, uh, Bob Levy, with uh, of originalism versus the living Constitution, how do you think that his presence on the court will affect the decisions in the near term? Well, Gorsuch is a textualist um, <clears throat> in the Scalia mold, uh, so it's right that he should have been confirmed. We're replacing uh, a textualist with a textualist. Um, he's definitely, though, mainstream. He's not a radical right-winger, as the uh, liberals in the Senate have tried to uh, make him out to be. Uh, in 2006, 11 years ago, the Senate confirmed Gorsuch unanimously, no dissenters, by voice vote, uh, as an appellate judge on the Tenth Circuit. Uh, all of a sudden, for the uh, for the Democrats in the Senate, he's become unacceptable. Um, you wonder what the heck's happened in the last 11 years. He's written 800 appellate opinions, and only 14 of them uh, drew dissents 
uh, from his colleagues. That 14 is 1.75% of his appellate opinions that he wrote. Um, and most of his colleagues were appointed by Democratic uh, presidents. So he's, he's quite mainstream. He's heard over the course of his career 2,700 cases, and he only dissented in 35 cases. That's 1.3%. Some of his cases have gone up to the Supreme Court for review. Some of the cases that he's written, nine of them went up to the Supreme Court. He was affirmed by the Supreme Court in seven out of the nine cases, and four of the uh, affirmations were by nine to zero uh, votes. And the, the, his reversals, one of them involved an uh, arcane question under the Tax Injunction Act, and then there was a recent decision uh, of how, whether tax, taxpayers were obligated to provide an autistic child with a better education. So, I, you know, it's quite clear that Gorsuch has the necessary experience and expertise and uh, temperament to be a justice, albeit on the conservative side and in the Scalia mold, and I think you will see him continue to um, to question uh, expansive government, to ho- uphold individual rights. Uh, indications are that he will be a proponent of gun rights, for example. Uh, he will be less deferential even than Scalia was to these various administrative agencies. Uh, Scalia's view was that uh, uh, you know, we, we've already been down that road. We've already talked about deference to the administrative agencies. It's a battle that's been fought. Uh, the folks that uh, think that we shouldn't be deferential, they lost that battle, and Scalia didn't want to revisit it. Gorsuch will be much more likely to revisit that issue as to how much deference the uh, court should be giving to these administrative agencies that are exercising uh, lawmaking power that was not given to them in the Constitution. So that'll be, I think, the main difference. Otherwise, you'll expect to see somebody who's a, a textualist and who uh, I think you'll see agreeing with uh, Scalia, Thomas, uh, and Alito on a large number of issues. We are talking with uh, Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute and a constitutional scholar. We've been discussing the recent uh, Senate battle about the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, the use of the filibuster, and the concept of originalism versus the living Constitution, and how Neil Gorsuch is likely to affect the court. Uh, in very, and so, in, the, in a lot of in a lot of ways, he pretty much will mirror what Scalia would have done, but maybe have his own personal blend uh, and opinion, which will make him slightly different. Is, is that what you kind of feel? Yeah, and I think the biggest difference is going to be this area that I just mentioned, that is uh, the uh, deference to administrative agencies. That is a huge problem. And frankly, I think my own view is that Scalia was wrong on that issue and that Gorsuch is correct on that issue, so that Gorsuch is... Uh, uh, service on the court now will be a major step forward in reining in the power of some of these administrative agencies. You know, uh, Bob, this is a really absolutely, to me, what I believe is one of the most critical issues that is before our government and eventually in some ways in front of the court, and that is the regulatory state. To me, that is legislation without representation. These are unelected bureaucrats who are making law. There's virtually no public recourse. If you've ever had anything to do with an administrative law court, it's uh, it's something out of Franz Kafka. Uh, so let's talk about the regular st- regulatory state. Uh, what is your feelings about it and, and your opinions? Well, we need to slow down the growth of this Leviathan government, and the way to do it is to is to uh, put some constraints on the uh, the regulatory. Uh, state. Uh, if you look at the 
Constitution, the very first sentence of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, that's right after the preamble, the very first sentence says, all legislative power is vested in Congress. Now, the framers said that because they were smart and they knew if Congress passes an oppressive law, at least the voters and the taxpayers can do something about it. We can elect somebody else. The problem, however, is suppose the law is murky and nobody knows what it means, or if we take uh, something like Obamacare, a few, if any, of the, the folks in Congress even bother to read the several thousand pages. And then suppose the president then instructs one of the roughly 320 regulatory agencies in Washington, D.C. to go ahead and fill in the details of this murky law. And as you know, uh, under those circumstances, the voters don't have any recourse because these agencies and cabinet departments are run by unelected bureaucrats. And these uh, they are not responsive to the political process. And that's exactly what happened, by the way, with uh, with the bailout or TARP, you know, the Troubled Asset uh, Relief Program, which basically essentially turned lawmaking power over to these uh, executive departments. First, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, and then Paulson's uh, successor, uh, Timothy Geithner. And if you remember, you know, Paulson decides to purchase toxic assets from banks too big to fail, and then he did, changes his mind. Uh, even though Congress gives him no guidance whatsoever, and he decides that the government, the U.S. government, is going to become stockholders in these big banks, and then Geiger comes along and says we need a public-private partnership, and what he means by that, of course, is the private banks get all the money in the public, that is, you and and, and, the, and the other taxpayers, myself, we pay all the costs. And along the way, uh, the administration bails out AIG with $180 billion, the insurance giant, and a few tens of billion dollars to bail out the automobile companies, even though Congress had refused to pass uh, bailout legislation. And then the courts take a look at this, and they say, well, you know, Congress, yes, is supposed to enact legislation. That's what the Constitution says. They're not supposed to pass the buck to these uh, regulatory agencies, but uh, governing is complicated, and uh, we're going to make an exception. So we're going to allow this delegation of legislative power to the agencies and to the executive departments as long as Congress lays down some kind of intelligible principle so the agencies know how to fill in the gaps. But, you know, you ask yourself, what was the intelligible principle that Paulson and Geithner uh, had to follow? Nobody knows the answer to that, uh, least of all the taxpayers who foot the bill. Uh, the, the principle seems to be go out and make things better, which is hardly a, an intelligible uh, principle. So, you know, from a, from a constitutional perspective, the substantive question is what policies are ultimately adopted. And that, of course, is critically important. But there's more than just substance involved. There's also process involved. And what matters procedurally is that Congress, and not an executive or administrative agency, is the supplier of the policies. Uh, and if Congress needs assistance to legislate, yeah, it, it's complicated. But Congress can obtain assistance. They can get it from their staff, their from universities and professional associations and from think tanks like the Cato Institute and from the staff of these various uh, agencies. But Congress itself should have to review uh, the recommendations of these agencies and sign on uh, before uh, those uh, recommendations become law. It, it doesn't mean Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have to decide technical things like carbon limits or bank capital requirements. You can still have that done by so-called experts. But then Congress has to have the final word so that the public has some recourse. Congress has to give its stamp of approval. These agencies don't have 
535 legislators that they have to convince. And we don't know, as taxpayers and as voters, uh, that opposing views were adequately aired in these agencies. But we don't even have a good record of the deliberations or what factors they considered, what factors they didn't consider. And we don't have any recourse, any redress, if the agency uh, gets it wrong. And, you know, this is you a know, huge I think, uh, problem. Uh, when we one, had the, one of the uh, areas... Uh, Congress under Obama, the Republican Congress wasn't willing to advance Obama's agenda. So how did he advance his agenda? By getting these alphabet agencies to operate uh, overtime, you know, with Health and Human Services uh, making uh, health care regulations and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under the Dodd-Frank Act and EPA setting uh, global warming standards. And if you want to know the, the scope of that problem, these, these federal agencies dwarf Congress when it comes to making rules that control what we can and can't do. There's a there's a, a publication that lists all these rules. It's called the Code of Federal Regulations. It's about six times as large as the U.S. Code that contains all the laws passed by Congress. And in, in the last year alone, 2016, the final year of uh, the Obama administration, Congress enacted 2,966 pages of laws. The same year, these federal agencies turned out 32 times as much as that, 97,000 pages of regulations. So we got a big problem, and thankfully the Trump administration seems to be taking some steps uh, to uh, rein in the uh, regulatory state. One of the areas in which the regulatory state has been especially onerous uh, to the citizens of this country is in the environmental area. Environmental Protection Act, the Endangered Species Act, all from the Department of the Interior. And all of these regulations uh, directly affect so many of the citizens and what they can do in terms of where they can build, where they can travel, in terms of what they can do. Uh, and just some of these regulations, which are so innate, just so stupid, like <clears throat> labeling carbon dioxide a poison gas, when we know anyone who has passed eighth-grade biology understands the symbiotic relationship between animals and plants and that carbon dioxide is not a poison gas. So this, again, is, a, is an example of where some of these agencies uh, do regulations based on a political agenda that negatively affects the safety, the lives, the health, and the welfare of the citizens of the country, and we have absolutely no recourse whatsoever. That's right. And, uh, of course, the root problem is that Congress has permitted this lawmaking to be delegated to these agencies. So you've got two levels of problems. The most basic level is the delegation of lawmaking power itself. And over the course of uh, years, since the progressive era, since the early 1900s, this process has accelerated. And it's now to the point where, as I said, we have 320 regulatory agencies, and, and last year alone they issued 97,000 pages of, of regulations. The second problem is the one where I think Gorsuch is going to make quite a difference, and that is once these, regula these regulations are, are enacted by these agencies, um, suppose they're contested. How much deference do we give to the agencies in terms of their interpretation of the underlying statute? And there is this doctrine known as the Chevron Doctrine, named after a case that was decided a long time ago. It says that the agency's uh, interpretation of the statute should prevail as long as it's not unreasonable. <clears throat> well, 
Neil Gorsuch believes, I think, that we shouldn't be quite so deferential to these agencies. Uh, maybe that belief is because the agencies really shouldn't be making the regulations to begin with. It should be up to Congress to give the final approval on these various uh, regulations. Uh, we will see, I think, under Gorsuch, and if he can garner some support from the other justices, and he certainly will from Clarence Thomas, I'm sure, uh, we will see less deference given to these agencies, and maybe, uh, if we're lucky, we will see uh, some movement toward uh, back toward what the framers originally intended, which was Congress makes the laws, not administrative agencies and certainly not cabinet uh, departments. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning.